0: Thanks, Dan. At least my wife does find me good looking. <laughs> it really is a, a privilege to, to be sharing and not, not one that's taken lightly. And um, it's been a, this has been an interesting um, preach to prepare. Um, I think when, when you have a, a prophetic gifting, you kind of have a sense of, of what's happening. Is that me or is that just, am I doing okay? Yeah, I can just carry on. Okay. You have a sense of what God is wanting to do. And as I've been kind of preparing, it's, it's, it's been one of the hardest things, uh, prophetic, uh, well, preachers that I've had to prepare in a while. I mean, my daughters panic when they see me waking up at 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning trying to put this whole thing together. But, but I do believe in fresh manner. See, so I can't give you something I prepared yesterday. It has to be today's food. <laughs> and then the problem is when you... At half past six or half past seven, God starts to speak to you and your, your whole thing starts to take on a different kind of thing. And the terror levels just begin to rise, you know. So if, if I have a pause, and I'm just trying to look intelligent... You know, underneath it, I'm just trying to figure out how I link up with what I've just said and what I need to say. But anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. When, when we were in worship, I had this picture come to me. Of I don't know if you've seen that, um, that uh, documentary on, um, it's called Eternal Enemies, I think, on lions and hyenas. I don't know if you, is any, if, wave at me if you've seen it. Okay, one person, two, five, okay. Can I suggest, if, you, if you're not squeamish, go and watch it. Incredibly, incredibly powerful. I think for me, deeply, deeply spiritual. But the story really is this. It, it follows a, a tribe of lions and a, a pride. Yeah, pride of lions and a cacophony of hyena whatever you want to call hyena and and they, they're kind of they, they, they're eternal enemies they just don't get them because they, they're hunting in the same space and they, they do the things, now the thing is the hyenas outnumber the lions by quite a large degree but and what they do right at the end of the movie the, the female, the lionesses make this kill and they're kind of in there And they're starting to eat. And the male lion is doing what men do is wandering and doing his thing. You know, totally abdicating all responsibility and doing whatever he does. And the hyenas come. And now any single female lioness would kill a hyena in a one-to-one battle. But there's like 50 hyenas and 20 female lionesses. And there's this thing going on. And, and the, the lionesses are on the back and the hyenas are yapping at them and starting to bite at the fem, and getting braver and braver and braver and braver. And this is going on. But it's like the yelps of the female lion carried far enough for the male lion to hear. And they, they catch this thing on video where the male lion hears what's going on. He was probably more concerned that his food was getting consumed by the hyenas, but irrelevant. And he comes in, and they catch it on camera, this most incredible scene. And he comes in, and there's a fight going on, and within like a split second, he sees who the matriarch is. The matriarch is the leader of the hyenas. And he just zones in for her, And he goes for her. And she suddenly realizes, hang on, things aren't going as well as planned. And she starts to run. And this male lion just fixes other hyenas cutting across doing this, just fixes on her. And he takes her out. And he literally, he swats her with this thing. She tumbles, he gets her, and literally one shake, and she's dead. And I feel like, as a community, the lion is coming. And he's going to take up the hyenas that have been yapping and causing problems, and we've been trying to fight and haven't known how to fight. And when the male lion, when the lion of the tribe of Judah comes, he deals with it completely and utterly. And I feel like, even as as Stan preached last week, shame is one of the things that the lion is going to deal with in our lives. And I'm going to speak on this morning, I'm going to continue with. With shame, and I want to say, if you didn't listen to what Stan spoke uh, spoke about last, we go and get that and listen to it. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful, and I think it sets a platform for understanding shame. So I'm gonna I'm gonna zone in and look at how shame impacts our relationships. So I'm not going to be take a broad picture. I'm going to come in very defined. Now, I think shame, and that uh, you can talk for. For months, weeks, I'm not a psychologist, but I have some insight into how it wrecks havoc in people's lives, and, and scripture speaks to us very powerfully how we can deal with it. So I'm going to talk from that perspective, and, and I trust as I'm speaking, expect the anointing that kills the hyena to speak to your life right now, today. Expect that. Brilliant. Expect that. Okay, so let's get a little technical just to, to, to start going. Is when, when we talk about shame, a whole lot of people have a whole lot of different things. So I just want to define it, mention a couple of points around it, and then I want to kind of step into what I'm going to say. So, I mean, if, if you want to read about shame, or listen about shame, there's, there's really there's a whole lot of, there's a lots and lots of things, but one of the very powerful uh, people to listen to is Brene Brown. She's a, she's a Texan, and, and she's a, she studies shame. She's spent studying shame for 12 to 14 years as a, as a psychologist, psychiatrist, I think psychologist, and she's got incredible insight into shame on that level. And so what what she says, her description of of shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. That we are unworthy of love or belonging. An intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. And she goes on that it affects all of us and profoundly shapes the way we see and interact with our world. It affects all of us and profoundly impacts the way we see and interact with the world. Okay. Now, one of the things that she does uh, speak about and Stan did say that, but I feel it's really just important to, to differentiate. There is a difference between guilt and shame. So guilt is really around, it, it speaks to what I do. So I'm guilty of being a bad person, or, or, of doing bad things. Shame speaks to who I am. That I am a bad person. So it's, it's very, very similar, but what they address is very different. And the way of dealing with them is very different as well. Guilt is far easier to deal with than shame because shame speaks to the person. Okay. So, because of that, because shame speaks to you, it affects you, it implicates you, it has a profoundly spiritual dimension to it. A deeply, deeply spiritual dimension. You see, when, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the voice of the Father, as he's baptized, speaks to him, and says this is my son whom I and but prof- you see those three things identity affirmation and love as the reserve of our father that we primarily have to get those from heaven shame comes along and says no I'm going to give you an identity. You're a nobody, you're a nothing, you're a not that, you're a this. And so shame exalts itself and tries to put itself above the word of the Father to our lives. That's why shame is so powerful. Because it totally undermines the, the, the identity we have as sons and daughters of heaven. It speaks straight into that. And it's very, very very powerful and dangerous see whatever was the root of the shame that you carry has elevated itself above the word of God to you the truth of the father to you and that's very very powerful so whatever was the root of the shame that you carry has elevated or tried to elevate itself above the word of God to you but God is saying Gary you're my son Shame comes along and says, no, you're not, Gary, you're not worthy. And we see that in the life of Jesus. When he gets baptized, you're my son. The very first thing that comes along is the enemy, if you are. It attacks his identity. It tries to put shame on him. <laughs> but Jesus, no. Silly. Okay, so that's the first thing. The difference between guilt and shame. I want to say this, is that shame... It's incredibly hard to self-diagnose. So right now, I'm talking about shame. Most of the guys are saying, nah, no, I'm okay. Not me. Most of women are saying, oh, yes, that's me. No. <laughs> See, shame, when somebody starts to talk about shame, it's not something you jump up and say, pick me, pick me. It's not like a prophetic word that's going out. You know, it's like, oh no, I don't want... I'm, let, let me avoid that. You know, last thing in the world I want is my shame displayed on the screens here. You know what I mean? So, so there's no, in many ways, the thing that we're protecting has no incentive to diagnose shame in our lives. So when, when you're hearing me speaking about shame, the, our proclivity and our leaning is to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and say it doesn't apply to me. That's why it's incredibly hard to self-diagnose. The second thing why it's incredibly hard to um, self-diagnose is that most most events that that induce shame into our lives, the traumas, the tragedies, whatever the, the event or the circumstances or the the lived uh, condition that brought shame into our lives, normally happens between 5 and 15 years old. So, shame is not something new. It's part of the furniture. For most of us, when we talk about an area that would, would be shame, uh, a product of shame, we'll think, no, that's our character. That's just who I am. That's the depth of how shame has come to be, to be part of the furniture in our lives. And we actually, we actually need someone outside of us to say, that's not you. That's not you. That's why the cure for shame is different to the cure for guilt. The cure for shame happens in community. The cure for guilt happens before our Father. Okay. So if you want to know or try and self-diagnose shame, never look for shame. Because none of us like walk around, I've got shame. But you've got to look for shame's children. Shame has lots and lots of children. Heaps of children. And just look for the children of shame in your life. Anger. Withdrawal. Perfectionism, and the list just goes on and on and on. All the things that we do to cover our shame. But we're not going to go there just yet. And I want to say, the last sort of sub-point I want to say about shame is that there is an incredible variety in the intensity of shame in our lives. So for some people, I mean... I'll t- a really good way to illustrate this is we, uh, many, many years ago, well, probably about seven, eight years ago, ten years ago, we were, we were staying with friends of ours in Europe, in Holland, and we decided I said, we're going to treat the girls to a horse ride. And so it was Kate and Julia, my two daughters over there, and these friends of ours, their two daughters, Amy and Sarah, and it's like, hey, can you guys ride? And, and Amy, the older ones, yeah, I can ride. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. So we go off to the the, the place where you ride, and we pay for the the um, the ride, and they're kind of asking questions. And while I'm, I'm I was helping Amy sort of get a horse ready, and I must say there was like a, a little suspicion that. Maybe she doesn't know how to ride that well. Just starting to creep in. But then you th- I was kind of like, well, maybe she's just ridden where, you know, you come, you get and get in the horse and off you go riding. You don't have anything to do with tacking the horse or whatever. Anyway, so I help her onto the horse. And as she sits on the horse, I give her the reins. She looks at me and says, okay, so how do I steer this thing? <laughs> yeah. At that point, I realized she was just a really confident person. And she was like, I can do anything, kind of. Anyway, so off they go for this out ride. We kind of gave Amy this little crash course. And, and the horses got spooked. And of course, Amy's horse just goes. And, she, and it's through the forest, and she's screaming and crying. Luckily, Kate was with her. Kate said, I need to say this part. So Kate, like, gallops off, grabs a hold of Amy's horse and, and restrains it and brings it to a thing. So let's give Kate a hand. Not only is she beautiful, she's got talents, so. <laughs> so, So, shame, that's the one extreme. Where, where shame is like an un, like untamed horse. It, you just hang on to your life and it's just leading you everywhere. And you can see that in people. Just you can see it from a mile away. They just... That's the one extreme. So then on the other side... You have this different kind of shame or different level or intensity and and to kind of keep with the horse story, when Janine and I got engaged, we um, got married, sorry. We went on, on honeymoon and we're at this place called Midlands Horse and Trout or Sal and Trout. And so they have, so I mean really like not very bright, still young. Great idea, let's go for an out ride. So we sign up for the afternoon out ride. It's like three and a half hours horse ride. But so the horse that I'm riding, like, and the horse that Janine's riding have got issues. And so when I kind of get next to Janine's horse, it's like kicking my horse and, you know, and so what, what happens is I manage the shame and I pull my horse back and I just keep it away and I can, I can manage this. To the outside, everything looks Okay. But actually, it's only okay because it's managed. So as soon as I get ahead of Janine's horse or do anything else, it does its thing. It rears its ugly head. So, so we have this level of shame. So for some of us, our shame is managed. And I was like that. I had managed shame. But if you'd said to me, Hilton, you got shame. I would have said, no, I haven't. What I was actually saying and I didn't realize is my shame is managed. Just put me outside the domain that I can manage this horse and chaos would erupt. And there would be certain incidences or certain things would happen and the shame in my life would rear its ugly head and, <laughs> and do its thing. But anyway, I must just finish that story. So we do this three and a half hour horse ride. It's absolutely amazing. And now I want to just put you the picture. I think the last time I rode a horse was 10 years before that. So it's it's amazing. We have the horse ride. We get back. We have dinner that night. We go to bed. Wake up the next morning. I kid you not. I could not move. I was like my my legs felt like they're bowed. I'm like, and like Janine, we, we're the same. We're an absolute flipping. We kind of like get up. We're trying to, and we're literally walking like this. You know. Yeah. So this is honeymoon. So it's like good planning. You know. So we're we kind of like having the conversation, what are we going to do today? Like, what can we do? There's not a lot we can do. <laughs> so Janine says, well, let's, let's do a Midlands meander. So I said, no, well, that's cool. You know, we kind of get to the car, take a uh, into the car, and we drive. And the first kind of place we arrive, you've got the parking lot at the bottom, and there's like stairs up to the shop. So we kind of park at the bottom, and we get out, and we're the first car to arrive there, kind of. And so the lady whose shop it is kind of obviously comes to the door to greet us, and all she sees is like me walking up like this and Janine holding each other. And as we get to the top, Janine goes, Hi, we're on honeymoon. Shame came on me that day. I looked at her and said, (laughs) and she was like looking at us like, anyway, shame. (laughs) So, how does shame impact relationships other than horse riding on honeymoon? Let's go to Genesis 2. I mean, I'm just going to jump around there so you, don't, you, um, you all know that. End of Genesis 2. One line, last line of Genesis 2. NRV: Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's a relational picture. There was nothing in Adam on the inside and the outside that he had to hide from his wife. There was nothing in his wife that she had to hide from her husband. There was this vulnerability of connection, this union, this, there was nothing between them. It's this is beautiful. It's a metaphor. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of that. Genesis 3. Let's go down to verse 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Who could Adam see? Eve. Who could Eve see? Adam. See, that's something that happens to their relationship. All of a sudden, Adam is standing in front of his wife and he realizes, oh my hack! shame. Let me cover up. Eve is doing the same thing. Something happened when they sinned and it's like the original malady of mankind is shame. So first thing that happens to us after we sin, shame comes upon us and we hide. We hide from each other put little fig leaves and even to the point that God had to like kill an animal and give them fur to hide themselves from each other so they didn't have to be vulnerable to each other. And I want to suggest when it comes to relationships that we have been hiding from each other ever since in different ways. Because the hiding is a protection of the false identity that I've taken on because of shame. The hiding is, what I now believe about myself is not something I want you to know about. So I'll put something on. I will hide. I'll back off. It's kind of like this. To give you a a way to understand this, the shift between Adam and Eve is kind of like this. Imagine you're sitting at a coffee shop and you're with a a really trusted friend and you're talking about something incredibly, incredibly vulnerable that you're only kind of comfortable telling them about. And so you're right in the middle of this conversation, sharing this thing, and and you're feeling naked. It's like, you know, but but because the friend is trustworthy, you can open up and share. And at that moment, somebody else pops, drops into the conversation, said, hi, hi, you guys, and it's someone you don't trust at all. What happens? Do you just carry on with the conversation? No, you don't. Everything changes. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. When sin came, shame came, everything changed. It was like somebody else dropped in, shame dropped in on the conversation, and they could no longer talk about things that they could talk about perfectly and easy. They could no longer show each other things and be open to each other a moment before. And shame has been with us ever since. In different ways, different places, it's been with us. So shame, because shame has been with us, our relationships have been suffering. Whether it's husband and wife, father and daughter, mother and son, friends at work, leader, follower, Whatever the situation is, patient, doctor, shame has been there implicating and impacting relationships ever since. And what we do is we learn behaviors to manage the shame, to rein in the shame, or we do things that protect us, the part of us that no one else can see because it's, we have received an identity that didn't come from our father. So we manage that, we hide that. See, we, and essentially this, we... We hide ourselves to protect ourselves. It's not because we have ulterior motive. Or any, it's actually like if I'm not worthy, so I'll hide myself. It's like a battlefield when we're going into that. We've got to protect ourselves. And you know, if you if you study war and battlefields and that kind of stuff, I'm sure there's still a couple of men over 53 you did the army or done training or whatever. There there is there is two primary ways that you protect yourself on a battlefield. Two primary ways. Number one, you conceal yourself. Yeah? You know? The enemy can't see you, can't shoot you. So we conceal ourselves. We hide ourselves so you don't know the real me. You never get to know the real me so you can never hurt the real me because I'm hidden, because I'm not, it's scary. And so we, we go through life nobody knowing who the real is because we've concealed ourselves. And the other way is we, we build cover. So you build a trench or you build a wall and you, and you hide behind that. And then we, we're safe because shoot. everyone shoots bullets. That hits the wall. It hits the persona out there not the persona in here, and it keeps us safe. Now, the problem with, with both of those is that the New Testament, or Jesus in particular, deals with it profoundly. He, he doesn't, doesn't allow that. Because when we, when we put ourselves out there, put something in front of us, the, the Greek word, the New Testament word for that, is Hypocrite. Which, which the literal meaning of hypocrite means to play a part, to pretend, or to act. So when you don't see the real me, whatever the reason, I'm being a hypocrite. Now, in, in when Jesus is dealing with the uh, Pharisees, and that, they were hypocrites for ulterior motives. They wanted promotion, they wanted this. But when I'm, even if I'm a hypocrite for ulterior motive, or a hypocrite to protect me, it's still the same thing. It's not the true me that you're dealing with. And that doesn't it it causes devastation in our relationships because you've got one Instagram profile trying to connect with another Instagram profile, but the kind of the operations of this marriage aren't quite the same as the Instagram profiles. It's like chaos here, but it's we're okay there. It's chaos here, but we're okay then. We wonder what's going on. It's incongruency because we're not living from the true who we really, really are. So when you conceal, we hide who we are. It's like the, that's the, the introvert hides. You walk into a room and, at a party and you, just, you don't even know they're there. They've just blended in. The one who builds cover is like the extrovert hider. So he doesn't hide by blending in. He hides by being large and big. So you see the, the persona that's not really him, but you never get to who he is or who she is. They're the loudest in the room, but what's being loud is not them. It's the persona, the protection. Because inside they're petrified that if you really get to know them, they won't be enough. So both ways, whether you this way or that way, when we try and protect ourselves, we wreak havoc in our relationships. So shame wrecks absolute travesty. It destroys relationships because there's no truth in the relationship most of the time. And we, most of the time we get to a sort of level where we can kind of live with each other, but it's not the truth. It's a not true that we live with. I was talking with a, with a, with a, with a person the other day and we were just talking about shame and, and that and she was saying, she was kind of coming to the realization that her mechanism, her desire to protect was causing devastation in her relationships it was, it was, because it was an overdeveloped desire to protect which was actually rooted in shame. But it comes out and you think, oh, she's kind and she's caring. But when the, when the motive is rooted in protection for herself, which then tries to protect others, it is just causing devastation. And unless we learn how to untangle our true identity from shame, we end up in this marshy kind of thing of shame. Where it kind of goes okay, then it doesn't go okay. And it kind of this, and it doesn't that. So how, how, do we, how do we unravel the effects of shame with regard to relationships? Because there's different ways that shame interacts. I'm, I'm specifically coming in on the relational thing here. I think the first thing that shame will do is to get you to disengage. Because when you're too close, you can see. When you're far enough, I've got, I can protect myself from you actually knowing me. So when shame comes in, we disengage. So the the anecdote to that is to engage. And to engage vulnerably with the right people. Is to have people that know what's going on inside of you. If you don't have that, goodness, Kevin is agreeing, huh? If you don't have that, you can never sort out your shame because Shame, just like identity, when Jesus' identity was externally validated, he didn't didn't stand and say, I am Jesus, Son of God. The Father said, this is my Son. And so our identity, which, remember shame, the root of shame, the root cause, is a wrong identity, a not true identity. We have to have it externally corrected. So we can't do that ourselves. And that only happens in community. and and I can be in community for 35 years come in and leave, come in and leave go to home group, come in and leave and nobody know a single thing about me that's not community and I can then point fingers and say who are these people, they call themselves the church I've been here and look what's happening to my life the church doesn't need me I need the church. I need the church for me to come right. I need the church for it to affect me, to impact me, to enlarge me. I'm the one who needs the church. I'm the one that needs to press in. It's too important a thing for my identity to leave it to the world to determine and for shame to determine. Super, super important. The second thing is you've got to be vulnerable when you're in community. You have to open up. And the third thing is is you need to be curious. When you react or something happens in a relationship, you have to be curious about that. Michelle Gibb, she's in a home group, she always speaks to us about that. When something strange happens or you react funny or like, hey, press the landmine, stop, be curious. Why did that do that? Why did I swear at my child when she told me to go left instead of right? Why did I lose it with my wife? Why did this? Why did the employee get me absolutely mad? It's not what you think it is. It's not there. It's the beneath and beneath and beneath. Okay, now, well, let me jump on quickly. So that's, the problem is if it ended there, it wouldn't be so bad. If shame only impacted these relationships, it wouldn't be so bad. But it doesn't. Because not only did they cover themselves, But when the Father came, they ran and hid. So we hide from each other, and we hide from God. We go and hide from God. And now we're quite sophisticated. So we know, know how to be in His presence, but stay completely hidden. We can do that, I can cry, but God's not getting inside me. And the thing is this, you know, Adam and Eve were shameless when they first knew God. They had no shame when they first knew God. Shame came, and then they hid. Now, there's a different order for us, is that we start with shame. So in a sense, we never know God without shame in our lives. So we're not aware that we're carrying shame. Because we've always known God. We just don't let God see certain spaces. I use the, the analogy that, that, that I walk with God as a two-way street. In the one sense, we walk towards God. And, he, he, he get, and we get to know Him. But at the same time we're doing that, we allow Him to come towards us. And He gets to know us. And there's an intentionality that when He comes into my house, into my heart, I begin to open the rooms. For him to come into every little room. The problem is we've all got downstairs and upstairs that we lay hidden. we all the trashers. And we don't want anyone to go there. Because that's just, like, oh, that's just like opening Pandora's box. And so we don't let God into our room. So the problem is this. When we haven't dealt with shame, we have a a not-truth identity. And we want to come to truth and have a relationship. Truth will never, ever validate not truth. It will never. It cannot. So when we're in our relationship with God and we can't get close, we can't get in, we can't get in. Yes, we saved and we forgiven, but there's just something. It's maybe you coming in your false identity. And God's never going to validate that because he has truth. He's saying, I'm not giving you permission to stay like that. Hilson, I want you to change. I want you to become who who I created you to become. So I'm going to hold you there until you work this out. Until you humble yourself enough and you lock into community enough and you're prepared to make some changes and hear what I am. And then I will embrace you as a father embraces his son. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what we have to do is ask the father... What about me needs to change? What do I, I mean, Jamie Winship says it this way. He says, in every situation you're in, don't ask God why. It doesn't work. But you just ask him, Father, what do you want me to know today? And he will tell you what you need to know today. And he says, when you ask that question, you then stop and you wait. Don't ask that question on your way out to work. Ask it and wait. And he will speak to you. You see, we all have something of this beautiful, beautiful fingerprints of God in ours. We all have the capacity to walk into the fullness of what he created us to be. But we have to walk into it. We have to decide. We have to make choices. We have to put pegs in the ground and say, I'm not going back that way. I'm going forward. And just like a climber will get to a certain level, pull out of his bag a thing, whack it into the rock and then attach himself to that, and then he goes to the next level. So if anything goes wrong, he only falls back to that level. And we need to be doing that in our lives, locking things in and moving us forward. I want to just come back to and finish on this. Truth will never ever validate not truth. And we see it beautifully portrayed in the Gospels, when, when Peter gets on his high horse and he wants to get, engage, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He will not validate Peter operating out of that persona, full stop, boom, speaks to the Pharisees and them. you hypocrites, he does not entertain, not truth. And so the beautiful, beautiful thing is with the gospel, with the new covenant coming in, we can enter freely into him and he will change us in the most beautiful and powerful way. We just have to be prepared to say, Father, I'm ready for your truth, not the truth that the shame or this incident or that incident has spoken to my life. Amen.